the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing, Clark Hilton Engineering, Dan Rice. Well, he's given up his office for the sake of the cause. We're glad to have you with us. Today we'll share a classic interview with Mary T. Letterleitner. She's the author of Women in God's Mission, Accepting the Invitation to Serve and Lead. The book is published by InterVarsity Press, and we'll share this conversation with you in this first hour of today's program. In the second hour, we'll talk with Lydia Kaiser. She's a corporate communications specialist at the International Headquarters of Child Evangelism Fellowship. They're doing some innovative things, and they have some resources for you and your family uh, to not only provide meaningful opportunities for your kids to think through the events that they are now living through, but also to share that with their friends and maybe other children in your community. Lydia Kaiser will join us in the 5 o'clock hour of today's program. First, we'll take a look at some of the uh, headline news. In fact, I had a story here I was going to lead with, and I've just minimized the whole thing. You know, yesterday we heard that there were 41 cases of COVID-19 in Multnomah County. Well, KGW is reporting that Fairview's Townsend Farms Cannery is the unnamed business in the metro area's COVID-19 outbreak. Now, according to the story, the Townsend Farms Cannery in Fairview is the business the Oregon Health Authority declined to name on Wednesday and Thursday as the resource or rather the source of a Multnomah County coronavirus outbreak. Now, the Oregon Health Authority Wednesday announced that there were 71 new cases in the state, of which 41 were in Multnomah County. Well, a lot of people were scratching their heads. Really? 41 cases? Well, they said the outbreak was tied to an outbreak at a specific location or locations of a business that operates in the Tri-County and Willamette Valley. There's no risk to surrounding communities, they said. Well, the state said more details would be forthcoming in several days, but refused to provide more specifics. Uh, when asked multiple times by reporters. Well, the actual source of the outbreak has been identified as Townsend Farms, as first reported by Willamette Week. Well, according to documents, the Oregon Occupational Health and Safety Administration received nine COVID-19-related workplace complaints from that uh, uh, employer, Townsend Farms, since March. The most recent complaint was filed back in uh, mid-May the 12th. Social distancing and sanitation is not performed or maintained 30 positive cases of COVID-19 at facility. Well, employees tested positive for COVID-19 last week and are back at work four days after testing positive. These were the complaints. Well, the Oregonian reported that about 300 people work at the cannery and operations are ongoing. Uh, Though workers test positive, the results were not immediately shared with state officials, according to the Oregonian. They're trying to reach officials at Townsend Farms, uh, which I'm certain at this point, given this um, high-profile outing, if you will, are now uh, being held accountable. So that's where those 41 came from, and uh, hopefully that will be resolved, at least for the employees who are working there uh, and for the broader community as well. In other news, a man was shot dead to death as violent protests erupted in Minneapolis for a second straight night on Wednesday over the death of a black man while in police custody, whose 
Uh, breath was taken from him when that officer's knee on his neck while handcuffed for seven full minutes ended in his death. Multiple reports indicate that Mayor Jacob Frey reached out to Governor Tim Walls to deploy the National Guard to the city. The mayor's office didn't immediately respond with specifics, but at least one group of armed men was seen outside a strip mall with the intensifying protests and looting in the city. The two nights of protests were sparked by the death of George Floyd. He had a name. He died Monday night while in police custody. A citizen's cell phone video later emerged showing Floyd on the ground with a police officer's knee pressed against his neck for approximately eight minutes. Officers had responded to a call from a grocery store that Floyd had allegedly tried to use a forged check to make purchases. Well, that officer and three others have been fired. They were fired on Tuesday. By Wednesday, the mayor called for the officer who pressed his knee against Floyd's neck to be criminally charged and the request of President Trump. Federal uh, investigators have joined the investigation into Mr. Floyd's death. Well, protesters also gathered Wednesday evening at the officer's suburban home as well as the Minneapolis home of Mike Freeman, the uh, Hennepin County prosecutor who would make the decision on charges in the case. No violence was reported in those protests. In other related news, Los Angeles protests erupted uh, surrounding the same death. An activist compare Floyd video to Eric Gardner, I can't breathe, in that case. Lawrence Jones urges Minneapolis uh, protesters uh, to let the system do its job, although the system, um, many protesters argued, has already failed. Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey fired back at Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, who criticized the tech giant's decision to fact-check the president's tweets about mail-in voting. By the way, the fact-check was uh, full of errors itself. On Tuesday, Twitter slapped a warning label on one of the president's tweets for the first time, cautioning readers that despite the president's claims, fact-checkers say there is no evidence that expanded nationwide mail-in voting would increase fraud risks and that experts say mail-in ballots are very rarely linked to voter fraud. Within minutes, the president accused Twitter of stifling free speech and interfering in the 2020 presidential election based on fact-checking by fake news CNN and the Amazon Washington Post. In a preview clip of his interview uh, with Dana Perino, Zuckerberg weighed in on the escalating dust-up between Trump and Twitter, saying, we have a different policy than, I think, Twitter on this. Uh, the Daily um, Briefing, uh, he told the Daily Briefing in an interview scheduled to air in its entirety today, I just believe strongly that Facebook shouldn't be the arbiter of truth of everything that people say online. He added private companies probably shouldn't be, especially these platform companies, shouldn't be in the position of doing that. Well, in a late-night Twitter thread, Dorsey refuted Zuckerberg's comments while defending Twitter's um, head of site integrity, Yoel uh, Roth. Anti-Trump tweets by Roth were discovered in the wake of the politically charged debate over the president's tweets. And Attorney General William Barr has asked John Bash, the U.S. Attorney for the Western District of Texas, to review the practice of unmasking before and after the 2016 presidential election, a controversy that was picked up, has picked up steam after the Justice Department moved to drop charges against former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. The DOJ said on Wednesday, Republican lawmakers have demanded more information about the extent of the practice after a previously clandestine list of Obama-era officials who sought to reveal what turned out to be the identity of Michael Flynn in intelligence reports was released earlier this month. The Department of Justice has moved to drop the Flynn case after internal memos were released, raising serious questions about the nature of the investigation that led to his late 2017 guilty plea for lying to the FBI about his Russian contacts. And the House uh, has voted by on uh, the Speaker's 
proxy rules, ignoring objections of unconstitutionality. The story notes that it was the first time in the uh, chamber's 231-year history that lawmakers were allowed to vote by proxy and ignored Republicans' objections that it rendered the tally unconstitutional. And immediately, Democrats abused the privilege from Kevin McCarthy. Democrat Charlie Crist said he couldn't show up for work in Washington today due to the ongoing public health emergency. Then he gave his vote away to someone else so he could attend a rocket launch instead. Well, Governor Cuomo is accused of using misleading statistics on nursing home deaths. Nursing homes happen to be the place where this virus ravages um, despite the fact that we had the greatest number of cases and we were in the eye of the storm. Uh, You look at us vis-a-vis the country where we did better than 33 other states, he points out, then those uh, are just the facts, Cuomo said. But the the Cuomo administration has uh, has knowingly omitted an unknown number of deaths from its official figures on coronavirus deaths in nursing homes. The administration acknowledged earlier this month following a Daily Caller News Foundation investigation. Turns out Michigan Governor Whitmer also forced nursing homes to take infected patients and refuses to disclose nursing home deaths. Uh, the same people who accuse anyone who's been pushing for reopening uh, as um, being uh, out of touch and uh, warning uh, them that they don't want to kill their grandparents should be outraged over these perverse nursing home policies. But they get very little attention as the media obsesses over beaches and people not wearing masks outdoors. Apparently seniors, in their view, don't matter as much. Avic Roy points out in the 39 states that currently report such figures, an astounding 43% of COVID-19 deaths have taken place in nursing homes and assisted living facilities. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, winding our way through some of the day's headlines. We'll be back in just a few moments, so do stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you coming up later this hour, in fact, in our next segment, we'll talk with Mary T. Letterleitner. She's the author of Women in God's Mission Accepting the Invitation to Serve and Lead. Also, in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Lydia Kaiser, corporate communications specialist in the international headquarters of Child Evangelism Fellowship. They're doing some innovative things with technology all around the world, and they've provided resources for kids who are impacted by this pandemic, sheltering in place. Uh, You can uh, find out more about those resources when she joins us in the next hour of today's program. Well, Dr. Fauci says that he could see, or rather we could see, a vaccine by the end of this year. While on CNN, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases said, I still think that we have a good chance if all the things fall in the right place, that we might have a vaccine that would be deployable by the end of the year, by December, November, December, he said. Well, that's encouraging. Meanwhile, the Texas Supreme Court unanimously ruled that voters may not claim the virus as a reason to get a mail-in ballot. Story notes that under Texas law, only voters who are 65 or older disabled, in jail, or outside their home country during the election are eligible to vote by mail. By the way, on this day in history, 1892, the Sierra Club is originated in San Francisco. 1929, the first all-color talking picture, On With the Show, produced by Warner Brothers, opens in New York. On this day in history, 1937, in Nazi Germany, Volkswagen is founded by German Labor Front, And in 1980, the first woman graduate from the previously all-male U.S. service academies, 61 female cadets graduate from West Point, 55 graduate from the Naval Academy, and 97 graduate from the Air Force Academy. Congratulations, women. 
who have uh, graduated at that time and those who have followed. Well, as I mentioned earlier, President Trump is crafting an executive order to so on social media that could seek to curb legal protections for the industry, a broadside that comes with his escalating fight this week with Twitter over the company's decision to fact check his claims for the first time. We've been told separately that the administration is working on a commission to look at alleged anti-conservative bias among big social media platforms. The president teased an announcement on Thursday morning saying this will be a big day for social media and fairness. It's been confirmed that uh, drafts of the executive order on social media would seek to curtail legal protections that shield social media companies from liability regarding what people post on their sites, though the language is still in the works. And more than 2.1 million laid-off workers applied for unemployment last week, the Labor Department reported on Thursday, as the coronavirus pandemic and the ensuing economic lockdown continue to wreak havoc on the U.S. job market. The new report, which covers the week ending the 23rd of May, pushes the 10-week total of job losses since states directed uh, residents to stay at home and forced non-essential business to close to 40 million, a rate of unemployment unseen since the Great Depression. President Trump on Thursday marked the sad milestone of the U.S. passing 100,000 coronavirus-related deaths by sending sympathy and love to those who have lost friends and family members. The six feet of social distance recommended by the World Health Organization to limit the transmission of COVID-19 may not be enough, according to some experts in a new article. In a perspective article published in the journal Science, three experts wrote that aerosol particles can accumulate and remain infectious in indoor air for hours while being easily inhaled deep into the lungs. More than 80% of passengers and crew members on a cruise ship who contracted COVID-19 were asymptomatic, a new study has revealed. The search, uh, rather research, published in the science journal Thorax, notes that 128 of 217 pastors, uh, passengers rather, and crew members tested positive for the disease caused by SARS-CoV-2. Of those, 81% did not show symptoms, leading researchers to conclude the prevalence of COVID-19 on effective cruise ships is likely to be significantly underestimated. And in California, theme parks can welcome visitors once again during stage three of the state's four-stage reopening plan, officials have announced. And several other developments. All businesses in Mississippi can reopen on Monday, provided they follow guidelines for combating the coronavirus, Governor Tate Reeves announced on Wednesday. And coronavirus has been especially tough on farmers, and not only from an economic standpoint. They face the angst of slaughtering millions of animals that will not make it to the nation's food supply. Since stringent lockdowns told in late March, the traditional supply chain for meat and poultry has been poultry rather has been upended. A newly published study suggests that bats indeed have been the originator of SARS-CoV-2 after researchers found novel coronavirus in the flying mammals. That is the closest relative of SARS-CoV-2 reported to date. And a Louisiana police department apologized and one of its officers was fired over a Facebook comment suggesting he thought it was unfortunate more black people have not died from the coronavirus. And the president of the International Committee of the Red Cross reported there have been more than 200 incidents of physical violence against healthcare workers linked to COVID-19 since March. 200 incidents of physical violence. As I mentioned, they're telling us now that six feet may not be enough uh, to stop COVID-19's transmission. Now, it's important to note that wearing a face mask can make all the difference in the world. But experts uh, said on uh, Tuesday that they believe the six-foot distance recommended by the World 
health organization may not be enough. Chai Wang of National Sun Yat-sen University in Taiwan, as well as Kimberly Prather and Dr. Robert Schooley of the University of California, San Diego, said that a large proportion of the COVID-19 spread appears to be occurring through the airborne transmission of aerosol. They added the transmission was produced by asymptomatic individuals during breathing and speaking. So not just speaking where you're aspirating, but breathing. On Tuesday, the experts said that for society to resume as normal measures must be implemented to reduce aerosol transmission, which includes the universal wearing of masks. In addition to widespread testing, they believe both practices could help identify and isolate those infected asymptomatic individuals. Well, the U.S. reached a grim milestone yesterday, 100,000 deaths attributed to COVID-19. Some are warning of a second wave later this year. The White House Task Force Medical Advisor, Dr. Anthony Fauci, says that is not inevitable. As for the statistics, the devil is in the details, and specifically the word attributed. We'll we'll come back to that if time permits. Well, these 100,000 are not nameless numbers, nor are they mostly famous people. The Washington Post reports they are overwhelmingly elderly. In some states, nearly two-thirds of the dead were 80 and over. Uh, They are disproportionately poor and black and Latino. Among the younger victims, many did work uh, that allowed others to stay at home out of the virus's reach. For the most part, they've uh, died alone, leaving parents and siblings and lovers and friends with final memories, not of hugs and whispered devotion, but a miniature image on a computer screen, tiny voices on the phone, hands pressed against a window. The individual stories are heartrending. Well, according to Reason magazine, across the 39 states that report the location of COVID-19 deaths, 42% have occurred in nursing homes and residential care facilities. In some states, the total is as high as 65%. Now, that's despite those residents accounting for just 0.6% of the population, which leads Forbes' avid Roy to note that the 99.4% of the country that doesn't live in these places is roughly half as likely to die of the disease. Numerically, New York's nursing homes have been especially hard hit, thanks to uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo. Of the 100,000 uh, 100, deaths nationwide, 23,000 occurred in New York. And of those deaths, perhaps as many as 10,000 occurred in or originated from New York nursing homes. To say this has been a tragic and bizarre episode in American history is an understatement. But that brings us back to the statistics themselves. As uh, Arnold Elmert uh, pointed out uh, a week ago, there are lies and COVID-19 statistics. Many Americans are justified in doubting that officials are accurately counting COVID-19 deaths because uh, there could be a big difference, especially in the elderly and infirm, between dying because of COVID and dying with COVID, but perhaps primarily due to another cause. So that distinction under these circumstances is not uh, the fine point that some are arguing need to be put in place. A CDC directive in March stated COVID-19 should be reported on the death certificate for all descendants uh, who uh, where the disease caused or is assumed to have caused or contributed to the death. Um, Kate Hutchinson, health statistics manager for Washington State's Department of Health, confirmed that her state's data reflects anyone who died that tested positive for COVID-19, irrespective of cause of death. So you've got two very different things. On the other end, there are some number of people who have died at home but aren't counted as COVID deaths because they were never tested. In a tragic irony, there have been loss of life from otherwise 
a treatable illness because of hospital restrictions as well as deaths of despair that wouldn't have happened had the country not totally shut down for over two months. Of those lockdowns, even Dr. Fauci declared last Friday, we can't stay locked down for such a considerable period of time that you might do irreparable damage and have unintended consequences, including consequences for health. He added, I don't want people to think that any of us feel that staying locked down for a prolonged period of time is the way to go. Those lockdowns were based on deeply flawed models and now untrustworthy statistics. And Mark Alexander argues there's going to be, well, something to pay as a consequence. Up next, we'll hear from Mary Ledleitner, Women in God's Mission. Stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Women have advanced God's mission throughout history and all around the world, but women often face particular obstacles in ministry. What do we need to know about how uh, to make women, uh, not make them, but how to create an environment in which women can thrive in ministry and in mission? Well, my next guest has written a book on that very subject, Women in God's Mission, Accepting the Invitation to Serve and Lead. Uh, my guest is um, uh, Mary T. Le- uh, Letterleiter. She is a founder and executive director of uh, Missional Intelligence. She has a Ph.D. from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and an M.A. in Intercultural Studies from Wheaton College and teaches as an adjunct professor at both institutions. She is a veteran missions leader and researcher who has uh, served for two decades with the Wycliffe Uh, Global Alliance and a variety of international leadership roles. She serves on the OM Global Board and has a board member, uh, has been a board member for Catalyst Services. She is also the author of Cross Cultural Partnerships and joins us today to talk about women in God's mission, accepting the invitation to serve and lead. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Georgina. I really appreciate uh, having the chance to talk with you. Well, let's begin with with your story. It may be surprising to some of our listeners that uh, there are women uh, in God's mission who are successfully leading while others are shrugging their shoulders as if, why, you know, why are we even discussing this is such uh, a um, an accepted things thing today. Uh, But I think it's important for us to recognize some of the challenges that women face. Let's begin with a bit of your story. Well, um, I started working in missions about 20 years ago, and over the years working with Wycliffe Bible Translators, I've been able to travel to a lot of different countries around the world. And what we find is the situation for women is very different um, in many nations and also even in our own nation um, when they're working in ministry context. God gives us um, a lot of freedom in determining um, our policies and processes and and how people work. And so uh, depending on what uh, those kind of processes are or what people have determined women are allowed or not allowed to do, it gets very complex um, for a lot of women around the world. Sometimes the the situation at work varies uh, significantly from their situation when they volunteer at their church, and then sometimes the situation at home is different still. So um, it's fascinating and it's challenging, but women are navigating a lot of um, challenges quite well and making an amazing contribution in the world. For the book, uh, Women in God's Mission, as a mission researcher, you interviewed and surveyed 95 respected women in mission leadership from 30 countries to gather their insights, their expertise, and best practices. 
Um, how how did you find these women and what did you find that was common among them? Well, um, I first started with some women I knew who were deeply respected and I would ask them uh, to recommend other women that they knew working in different types of um, ministries and organizations. I also talked to a lot of men in different countries who were deeply respected, and I would ask them for recommendations. So everybody in the research was recommended because people enjoyed working with the woman. They respected her as a leader. So um, so that was one of the, the first ways, and I'm in a lot of different ministry networks, and so I was able to just meet these incredible women. I mean, they were doing everything from working with um, at-risk kids to um, working in medical missions in some of the most difficult parts of the world to working in advocacy, human, uh, ending human trafficking or advancing literacy or Bible translation. They were in church planting. They, they were just in a really wide array of different types of um, professional occupations. Some were working as as Christians in maybe uh, just a regular university, but they were wanting to be a voice there. So um, so it was really, it was extremely fascinating and uh, just a a privilege and a pleasure Mm -hmm. to meet them. Well, and a pleasure to read their stories in your book as well. You write that because of the controversies about what women can and cannot do in ministry, I've always tried to avoid the topic of whenever possible. My professional strategy has been to keep my head down, work extremely hard, and draw as little attention to my gender as humanly possible. And there was some fear about um, a possible backlash by raising the issue with some of the women that you spoke with and perhaps some of your readers. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that may be foreign to some maybe of our our, uh, male listeners, maybe not so much to women listening. Right. I think that, um, I think that sometimes like even when I interviewed uh, different women, sometimes they would talk about trying to um, speak up for uh, having more opportunities in a certain setting. And sometimes just by uh, speaking up, uh, the space for them shrunk. So, so we have this situation. It's a really di- difficult one, and and you see it really across professions a lot of times uh, in North America and in many parts of the world. It's it's challenging. There's uh, a discrepancy in pay. There's a discrepancy in a lot of different areas, and um, sometimes if women speak up about them, uh, the situation becomes more difficult. Uh, in, in certain countries in the world, if women speak up, uh, they'll be physically abused for speaking up. So, so you know, you just you have this situation, and it's challenging. I think it's fortunate uh, for women who are in work situations where there's uh, just total equality and their gender never really plays into it, and it's just their competencies and, and what they bring. Uh, that's that's a great situation, but it's not um, it's not a universal <laughs> situation mm-hmm. for, for many women. Well, I found that learning how women are serving in missions in various places around the world helped me know how to pray more effectively about women in ministry and to appreciate 
uh, some of the opportunities that we have here and appreciate some of the unique challenges we have here as well. One of the things that you unveil in the book is how women serve in distinctive ways uh, and that there are key traits of um, faithful, connected leaders uh, that you could trace through their leadership and that might help others in uh, working with women to recognize as well. Talk a little bit about the uniqueness of women in ministry, because we might just assume that everybody does it the same. It doesn't, your gender doesn't really make much of a difference, but we are different in some significant ways. And I think women benefit ministry because of some of their distinctives. Right. They really do. I think what really shocked me in this research is I've studied global leadership for years. And I've always been taught and I've always seen around the world that people lead differently uh, based on what country they're from and the culture that formed them. Um, What was fascinating with this research was how similarly these women were leading (laughs) from many different countries and cultures. It went totally against what I had learned and expected. And then as I stepped back and I looked at it, I realized that I had seen that over the years, but I'd never recognized it. So for instance, um, a lot of women are socialized that they shouldn't look too ambitious. They shouldn't reach for higher positions. Um, And so Deborah Tannen, a famous linguist, has talked about that being the double bind, that if women um, are assertive and uh, more aggressive, a lot of times guys will respect or will uh, think that they're a good leader, but they won't really like them. But if women act more feminine, they're often liked but not viewed as being as competent of a leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was interesting with these women is they had navigated that double bind. They were both greatly liked and they were viewed as being extremely competent. So so one of the things was just um, the first trait. Uh, it's not about me. It's about God and his mission. And, and they were just so focused on that. And I found it so intriguing because it was the exact opposite of the strong man leadership model that, that seems so prevalent right now. So um, they really uh, felt like it was about God. It was about his mission. It was about his honor. It was about his power. And uh, at first, I was a little skeptical, thinking, is that really true, or are they just saying that? But then the next trait that they exhibited showed that it was true. They were really focused on prayer, and that was a hugely important part of their life. Uh, They wanted um, to pray because they felt like their relationship with with God was more important than their work. They prayed for discernment because they wanted the work to be done the way that they felt like God wanted it done. They prayed so that they wouldn't hinder the work, that their own personal weaknesses wouldn't get in the way. Um, And they prayed because they felt like ultimately the challenges were so big and so significant that really um, if God didn't work, not much would happen. Mm. And so, so those are just a couple of the traits. There are actually seven traits in this leadership model that I called the Faithful Connected Leader. And it encouraged me because so many leadership books are written by men and women try to find their place in those books. And I've appreciated a lot of those books. But it's nice to be able to bring the voice of gifted women to the leadership conversation. And I think a lot of guys are going to say, 
wow, that's pretty inspiring. I would like to be that kind of a leader. Yeah. In fact, that's the very thing I was just about to say. I would absolutely agree that there's something not just for women, but for men who work alongside women and want to help nurture women into leadership positions that can be learned as well. We need to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation in just a moment. Again, we're talking about the book Women in God's Mission. My guest is Mary Leader Leitner. She's the author, and we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're talking with uh, Dr. Mary Letterleitner, and I have to apologize right now because I think I have pronounced your name every conceivable way in the few times I've said it. Uh, so I apologize for that. But... No worries at all. Yeah. <laughs> but she is the author, whoever she is, <laughs> however the name is pronounced. She's the author of Women in God's Mission. It's a great book to help us better understand how we can work together to accomplish God's purposes. The subtitle is Accepting the Invitation to Serve and Lead. One of the things that you do is shed light on dynamics that inhibit women and also give testimony to God's grace and his empowerment in the midst of those challenges. What are some of the things that inhibit some of the dynamics that inhibit women and their ability to effectively serve God when they are called to do so? Well, um, one of the things that was really fascinating when I interviewed the women is that if they were married, it seemed like they were married to the same guy. <laughs> I kept thinking, this is so strange. <laughs> I, I know some of these guys, and they don't seem alike. They don't seem similar to me at all. But, but the types of ways that they were relating to their wives were very similar. And it reminded me of the passage in Ephesians about how marriage is supposed to model the relationship of Christ uh, with the church. And um, with these women, um, what what came out was that their husbands often were um, very supportive of them. They were encouraging them. They weren't threatened by them. Um, they really were proud of them, and and they really um, just sort of I don't know were just really. Um, beaming with joy when um, they accomplished things. And I found that very interesting because I I started thinking about parallels with Jesus. Um, Women can sometimes be hindered by a spouse who's focused just on his own comfort. But um, Jesus, was he focused on his own comfort? He he isn't with the, the bride of Christ. Is Jesus threatened by the bride of Christ, the church? I don't believe he is at all. Um, Does Jesus want his bride, the church, to grow to her full potential? I believe he does. Um, Does he delight in his bride's accomplishments? I think he really does. So um, so that situation um, was really significant in the research. And women that are married to someone who who doesn't respond the way Jesus does, they can still lead, but it's going to be so much more difficult for them. So I think a lot of times it starts in the home um, if they're married. If they're single, they have a lot more freedom. Um, Also, there are things um, just in terms of men opening doors for women or closing doors. Uh, A lot of times I think if we just assume that we know what women need, we inadvertently begin hindering them. Uh, each, each woman's kind of different. Her situation is different. And so I really encourage people to really talk to the, 
the women in your workplace or the women women in your ministry and and just ask what do they need to flourish um you know they might have health needs they might need more flexibility because of family situations um that sort of thing i think um i think the other piece that's really um necessary is having the right type of um metaphor for the workplace and and this gets it's more noticeable in um in a ministry workplace um the idea of what is the underlying metaphor about women are women uh, temptresses <laughs> who cause men to stumble or are we sacred siblings on the journey mm. um a lot of times we never talk about the uh metaphor that's at the bottom of all of our processes but it's kind of implicit and it's speaking all of the time and so being able to bring that out in the open and really talk about it. Um, another piece that's interesting, and it's probably more a case in ministry settings, but it, it can happen in regular work environments too, is is the equitable job titles and having a job description that accurately uh, conveys what a mm-hmm. woman is doing. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times someone's just called a, a pastor's wife. But Really, she's doing everything an executive pastor would do in a negative church. Or or um, sometimes if a guy has a position, it will have a, a fancier title. Uh, but if the woman has it, she'll be called a coordinator. You know, things like that can make a big difference in terms of just having consistency. Um, I sometimes wonder if every woman had a job description that actually captured everything she did, if the whole issue would kind of disappear. <laughs> because a lot of times women just do a lot of things and, and they don't get credit for yeah. what they're doing. Yeah. And yeah. You're so, absolutely so right. Just, oh, go ahead. Oh, those are just some of uh, some initial things that come to mind. I was going to say, you're absolutely right. We don't often talk about those things. What I'm uh, happy to say is you do talk about them in the book and you hear from or we have the opportunity to hear from other women who are facing these realities and these challenges uh, in the field and can provide for us great insight and direction for moving forward. Once again, the the book is titled Women in God's Mission, and there are many of us accepting the invitation to serve and lead. My guest is Dr. Mary, and I'm going to invite you to say your name at least once during the course of this program correctly. It's it's letter lightener, but truly, uh, don't worry, it's a very complicated <laughs> name. <laughs> well, Dr. Letter Lightner, I so appreciate the book, and I appreciate your taking time to be with us here today. <laughs> Oh, sure thing. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. (laughs) Bye-bye. Again, the book is published by InterVarsity Press, and you can find it uh, in in bookstores. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. In this hour, we're going to hear from Lydia Kaiser. She's a corporate communication specialist for the International Headquarters of Child Evangelism Fellowship. 
they are doing some innovative things during this pandemic season and reaching more kids and their families than ever before. They've also provided some resources that are available free of charge on their website for families who are looking for ways to engage young people. There are good news clubs that are forming online and in neighborhoods and within families. She'll tell you all about that when she joins us in our next uh, couple of segments. Lydia Kaiser with Child Evangelism Fellowship. Well, we have come to the conclusion that, quite frankly, we don't know everything about the coronavirus, but we certainly know more than we did, and that's good news. And while we might have made different decisions with more information, America's top medical experts agree at least on some things. We did the best with what we had. But now Dr. Martin Macri, he points out it's time to learn from those choices and move on. The things we got wrong, okay, let's move forward and do whatever's right. Well, the John Hopkins University professor like a lot of health professionals, was an advocate of the lockdown. We didn't have good information going into the pandemic, he explained. He was speaking to Washington Watch. We had really poor data from overseas. Some of it was not recorded, honestly. We didn't know the denominator. We didn't even know how contagious this virus was. So we threw the kitchen sink at it, and we asked the country to make major sacrifices this March. He says he was one of the people calling for a shutdown of non-essential activities, but now we need to adapt. Obviously, every situation, every locality is different. There's no one-size-fits-all virus approach. But in many ways, the country can't tolerate a harsh lockdown any longer. Again, this is Dr. Uh, Macri with the Johns Hopkins University. He's a professor. Unfortunately, he goes on to say the whole idea of reopening has become a polarizing issue. And the answer is somewhere in the middle. We've got to reopen, but we've got to do it carefully. Not all reopenings are created equally. But there are, he writes in the New York Times, things everyone can do to lessen the risk until we have a vaccine, which could be, as Dr. Fauci points out, as early as November, December. Now, one of the things scientists have learned is that the virus is transferred more from airborne droplets and less from commonly touched surfaces. Less, but not exclusively. These are micro droplets, the doctor says, uh, that spread when people sing, talk, or spit. And the number one thing we can do to reduce that transmission is to wear, you guessed it, masks. It actually allows us to do a lot of activities that we previously didn't think we could do with the virus in the background. Now, obviously, he joked, if um, if you're living in Palau or somewhere with almost no virus, then live your life. But right now, people around uh, should, in some of these uh, other areas, should wear masks. Grocery stores, busy running trails, anywhere you're close to people and cannot maintain a six-foot distance, which now, of course, is being called into question as being insufficient. But speaking of running trails, one of the best things people can do is spend more time outside. Early on, the doctor shook his head, saying that we should not have told people to stay inside their home. We should have told them to stay on their property and try to do things outdoors where We've discovered it's safer. Well, the virus doesn't like the heat and humidity, which may be why southern states didn't get hit as hard as some places like Illinois, New York, Massachusetts, and Minnesota. Hopefully, warm weather is coming for us as well in the next few days. In the meantime, businesses need to rethink their processes, too, and that shouldn't be a partisan issue. Dr. Markey, or rather Macri, agrees. Instead of talking about whether or not something should be open or closed, we should be talking about whether or not they can maintain distancing, use good hygiene, and safe precautions. If they can't, like a crowded NFL stadium, for example, that would mean it's time to modify or postpone. But where it's easier to distance, the path is uh, uh, to functioning is clear. Well, the choice before us isn't to fully lock down or to totally reopen. Many argue as though 
Uh, those are the only options. As a physician, he firmly believes that the primary goal of our reopening strategy should be to maximize the number of lives saved. But virus mitigation can take many forms, ranging from effective to excessive. The current normal, which its economic anxiety, skyrocketing unemployment and social isolation, can't carry on. We should work toward a new status quo until there's an available mass-produced therapeutic. Which, by the way, isn't going to be the panacea that one might think. You have a vaccine, therefore we're all free and clear. First of all, you have to convince people to take the vaccine. You have to know that it's safe, particularly for the elderly, who are the most vulnerable. And there are those who just simply will not be vaccinated. The flu vaccine has been available for many years, and many, many people, I'm not sure it's most people, just choose elect not to have it. So a lot of variables that will contribute to the vaccine, um, whether or not it will be effective, because people are either wary of it, believe it's not sufficiently tested over a long enough period of time under uh, circumstances of uh, different types of people, but we'll see what happens next. Well, in other news, the Department of Justice has made the uh, George Floyd case a priority. In fact, a top priority after the violent protests in Minneapolis. The Justice Department said this morning that it has made the federal investigation into the death of uh, George Floyd a top priority and it signed experienced prosecutors to investigate the death of the Minneapolis African-American man who died while he was pinned to the ground by a white police officer. That officer's knee to the neck of this man who was handcuffed for a period of eight minutes. It's also promised a robust uh, probe by the Federal Bureau of Investigation as another night of protests, rioting and looting gripped Minneapolis. The 46-year-old Floyd died Monday night after being handcuffed and pinned to the ground by a Minneapolis police officer, Derek Chauvin, while others looked on. Along with three other police officers involved in the incident, Thomas Lane, Tao Thao, and Alexander Kuang, uh, were fined uh, or fired rather from the force on Tuesday, but criminal charges have yet to be filed. On Wednesday, the mayor of Minneapolis, Jacob Frey, he demanded the arrest of the police officer seen on camera kneeling on Floyd's neck as he struggled to breathe. Uh, Frey also called for the uh, Hennepin County attorney, Mike Freeman, to act on the evidence before him and to charge the arresting officer shown with his knee on uh, the 46-year-old. I've wrestled with more than anything else over the last 36 hours one fundamental question. Why is the man who killed George Floyd not in jail? Fry asked during a news conference. If you had done it or if I had done it, we would be behind bars right now. The circumstances surrounding Floyd's death have weighed on the uh, city and have led, in some cases, to violence. The federal government now saying that it will be directly involved and make this a top priority. Well, yesterday, lots of people were excited because SpaceX and NASA's historic launch was about to take place. Well, it ended up being scrubbed, not because there was lightning, but there was too much electricity in the air. And given the source of fuel, that is a critical issue. Well, astronaut Judge, uh, Doug Hurley and Bob um, Benkin were scheduled to launch at, uh, let's see, what time was it? Uh, 1.33-ish our time on the 27th from Kennedy Space Center's launch pad 39A, which was also used for the Apollo and space shuttle programs. The launch was called off at uh, just 16 minutes and 54 seconds before the launch time. I can't imagine being those astronauts who had been in the capsule for quite a period of time because with this new technology, you don't fuel um, the uh, rocket until they're actually in it. Uh, the weather violation... Um, 
included natural lightning and the strength of the electric field in the atmosphere. Standing down from the launch due to unfavorable weather in the flight path, they tweeted at the time. Thank you to at NASA and at SpaceX for their hard work and leadership. Look forward to being back with you on Sunday, tweeted President Donald Trump, who, along with First Lady Melania Trump, was on site to witness this historic event at the uh, Kennedy Space Center. Vice President Mike Pence, uh, who is the chairman of the National Space Council, was also at Kennedy Space Center on Wednesday. Uh, He returned with the president uh, home, but will be returning on Saturday for that launch. No launch for today. Safety for our crew members, um, uh, tweeted NASA Administrator Jim Bridestein of the event. Well, the launch would uh, have been the first time a private company rather than a national government sent astronauts into orbit. Pretty uh, amazing thing. It would also have been the first time that astronauts have launched since U.S. uh, soil, rather from U.S. soil, since the final space shuttle mission in 2011. The next launch attempt will be on Saturday at 12.22 Pacific time, again from Kennedy Space Center. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Lydia Kaiser, corporate uh, communications specialist and international headquarters of Child Evangelism Fellowship with some good news as well as some resources to help families navigate this uh, pandemic and stay-at-home orders. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. As we're all sheltering in place and trying to come up with ideas to help not only entertain, but perhaps enlighten young people, some of us are at the end of our ropes. It's been about two months since we've all been at home. But I wonder if there's an opportunity for us to take full advantage of this time to train young people up in the way that they should go in a way that's appealing to them and uh, ministers to their hearts and answers their questions. Well, the good news is child Evangelism Fellowship has been doing just that for many, many years, and this pandemic has provided unique opportunities for them. Here to talk with us about that and some resources available to families who might be struggling right now is Lydia Kaiser. She's Corporate Communications Specialist at Child Evangelism Fellowship, and we are just so delighted to have you with us. Welcome. Thank you, Georgine. I'm very privileged to speak to you today. Well, let's begin by talking a little bit about about um, Child Evangelism Fellowship for those who aren't familiar with the ministry that certainly predates COVID-19. Yes, well, CEF has been around for 83 years. Uh, we're an international nonprofit ministry. Uh, we have 400 offices in the U.S. and are organized in most nations of the world with over 3,500 paid staff and hundreds of thousands of volunteers. And last year, CEF ministered to over 25.5 million children in its face-to-face teaching ministry. Your listeners might have heard of the Good News Club. That's our flagship program. It's an after-school club that meets in elementary schools around the country. There's around 5,000 in the U.S. and over 99,000 of them worldwide. You know, that that really is incredible. 25.5 million children a year in face-to-face ministry, and yet... This pandemic has presented new opportunities for evangelism. Um, This is good news (laughs) for those of us who are struggling to understand uh, how God is going to use this time. Tell us a little bit about how new opportunities have emerged because of the stay-at-home orders that many of us are now living with. Well, we all felt exactly as everyone else does um, in that it just seemed like everything we were doing was going to come to a screeching halt. Um, you know, because we, we do emphasize face-to-face ministry. 
Um, so we had to quickly figure out how to continue with ministry. And uh, South Korea actually made the first appeal to the international headquarters where I am right now. Um, we're just west of St. Louis. And they said, please come up with something to help us. And so the first thing we did was we came up with a Zoom training manual to help them do Good News Clubs online. And so it can, um, included all kinds of ways to make sure that they're following child protection policies and there's parental permissions, just like with live clubs, and just helping people who've never used Zoom to know how to use it most effectively, how to have a large group of children and someone monitoring them, all of those things. We put it in a manual for them, and they translated it. And it was so providential because once the pandemic hit the U.S., this manual was already ready. In fact, we'd already given it to all the real directors around the world, and it was um, being translated. But it was already in English, so we were able to send it out almost next day to our field here in the U.S. So all these clubs started, and they've been doing fantastic. They've been growing in size, and everyone is so excited about how well they're doing. Yeah, it's just exciting to see the innovation and the use of technology for the sake of the gospel that's ministering to young people who may find themselves bored, confused, uncertain about the future, and to be presented with an opportunity to consider what the scriptures say has the potential to make life-changing um, differences in the course of their future. Now, I know there are other um, things that have also resulted. You pointed out in an uh, email that I received earlier that um, there's an expanding phone ministry in the state of Washington uh, that has a press one to sure. speak to a good news guide. And people um, who answer the phone are counseling others, so ministering to children, but adults as well. Right. So what they have is a, it's called tell a story and people call in the, and listen to a story, children mostly, and then you can press one to speak to a good news guide is what they call it. And then a live person answers the phone and can counsel the child. So there's that. And then, um, our workers are all over the world have come up with so many innovations. Uh, people from Texas to Uganda have learned how to use Google Form features and are helping children to complete Bible lessons. Uh, we, we did a whole series of homeschool resources. They are uh, Bible lessons that are on three different developmental le uh, levels so that parents can choose. Now, everything I'm going to be talking about here, all these resources are free online. Your listeners can go to cefonline.com slash COVID-19 and access everything that, that I think I'll be talking about here. But there's an answer key for parents and um, so they can have these Bible lessons. Um, a lot of times the schools, you know, they're sending out some homework, but there's not enough schoolwork and the kids need more to stay busy with. So there's all of those lessons. There's the online Good News Club. And if children don't have good enough access to join a Zoom Good News Club, they can go to our Unite channel on YouTube at uh, YouTube slash Unite Kids. That's U-N-I-T-E. And there's children's church uh, programs on there called Good News TV. So they have to choose the playlist that's the Good News TV. But even churches are using these as kind of a children's church. So what happens is 
when your adults are watching online services and it's time for the children to normally be dismissed, they can get on their own device and watch Children's Church, the Good News TV, on our Unite channel. But again, all, all these resources can be found on cefonline.com slash COVID-19. Uh, we also have tracks on there. Um, people are emailing these tracks to other people. You can download a free PDF of these tracks. Uh, one evangelistic track is called The World's Greatest Doctor, and it parallels the virus and how it keeps us from our friends with something even worse, sin, because it separates us from God, and it explains how Jesus is the world's greatest doctor and how we can try to wash away the virus, but we can know how to have our sins washed away. Another tract is for more for saved children. It's titled Stop the Spread, and it's talking about the spread of fear. So like popping soap bubbles when you wash your hands, there are six fear busters from the Bible. So this is a really encouraging resource. And again, you can either watch these on the website, and you click on it, and it, there's a swoosh, and it turns the page. Or you can download them and share them with other people or just email other people the website address. And so people are just using these. Um, we've had millions of people look at our Do You Wonder Why booklet that's on that mm. website. Yeah. This booklet we developed after the 9-11 terrorist attack. And it's really about do you wonder why bad things happen in the world. And we've even heard from parents how very comforting this material is. There's a video also uh, where the children narrate the Do You Wonder Why booklet. I actually watched the, the uh, video and uh, found it to be very comforting, relevant to kids. I love the use of children's voices and the images of children and the different kinds of disasters that may um, they may experience in the course of their young life and putting them into perspective. These are tremendous resources. Now, were they developed specifically in response? I know this one at 9-11, but were some of these uh, developed specifically to respond to this pandemic or were they resources that you all have already had and are being put to use during this pandemic? Well, most of them were things we already had, but what we did for the pandemic was we made them available online and digital and free to download. Um, the Do You Wonder Why booklet has been printed by the millions all over the world in many languages, um, so it's a very time-tested resource. And all of these other resources are things that we did in response to the field needing them, um, such as the Good News TV, the Children's Church, um, the the stuck-at-home devotionals. Now, that those particular devotionals were carefully se selected from our uh, Wonder Devotional series that people can purchase at cefpress.com. But we've taken, taken um, specific ones that we felt would be especially good for this time and made them digital, put them for free on the COVID-19 webpage. We're going to continue our conversation with Lydia Kaiser, but I do need to take a quick break, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about Child Evangelism Fellowship and the tremendous resources that are currently available at cefonline.com. Uh, just uh, wonderful um, resources. We'll continue to talk about them in just a few moments, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Lydia Kaiser. She's Corporate Communication Specialist at the International Headquarters for Child Evangelism Fellowship. You might be familiar with the Good News Clubs, but CEF has been doing tremendous work spreading the gospel and teaching young people in places where you might not expect the gospel to be welcome or young people to be interested. They have provided free COVID-19 resources for children, and I spent some time uh, last night and today going through many of them, and just I find them to be um, entertaining, and uh, they hold a young person's attention. I think you'll find them very useful. I've already sent them out the, the link to several friends I know uh, with young children who are looking for ways to um, redeem the time that they have uh, at home. One of the things that you have on your COVID-19 resource for children page is the story of Jesus for children. It's a film. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Well, many people, I'm sure, are familiar with the Jesus film. Uh, this is the Jesus film for children, and it has the gospel clearly. And again, it's a wonderful resource that is uh, being used all around the world. CEF had a, a big part in its filming, and uh, so that's a fantastic resource. Um, I'd like to talk about the innovations that um, are resulting in more prayer. Um, CEF is very much founded on prayer, and that's a story in itself, but um, we've been placing an extra emphasis on people getting together on Zoom to pray, Mm-hmm. And we've been having worldwide prayer meetings with child evangelists around the world. And uh, on May 7th, in fact, we had a 24-hour long one uh, that just went around the world as the sun goes around. Um, and there were 73 different groups. The joy was just indescribable. And um, so different regions are continuing this and increasing this. And they're finding uh, that... Um, these, even the, these little countries, for example, in our region of the Caribbean, are sharing information and joining hands like never before for additional unity and um, just power in prayer. So this, these tools are things that many of our people just never would have considered using because the work was going well, they're reaching kids. Um, but this pandemic created a necessity for people discovering this technology and using it for clubs and learning how to maneuver and do things online like never before. And so God is just using it to advance the ministry forward technologically and with these methods by, I don't know, 20 years, 30 years, like a big jump where you know people would not have been forced to do that otherwise. And they're mm-hmm. going to continue using these methods. Uh, because they're so excited about them. So it's exciting to me that during this terrible time, um, God is using things for good and bring, drawing people to himself. One of the things I also noted is that um, while the the reach has changed, uh, in some places uh, the reach is increasing. You know, you have kids who would uh, typically be too busy with extracurricular activities uh, are now joining good news clubs. Are you seeing that kind of uh, response because... Uh, kids are required to shelter in place and their families as well who are looking for ways to uh, not just to entertain but to uh, to teach them that you're finding that access is uh, increasing. Right. And and before there were some children who could not attend after school good news club because they have to ride the bus home. Um, so now they can 
join the online clubs. Kids are sharing the invitations. Siblings are joining. Um, we've had, I was talking to one uh, chapter in Oregon where they were telling me that the clubs had increased in attendance so much that they were adding clubs every day of the week. Where, you know, it used to be club would be on one day of the week. Now they're every day of the week, Saturday and Sunday included, and the Monday through Friday clubs, they, they were getting so full they were having to add more clubs so they'd have a 3 o'clock, a 4 o'clock, and they were even considering adding a 5 o'clock. Isn't that amazing? Yes, yes. You um, also pointed Bermuda, out that people... Oh, go ahead. Uh, in Bermuda, the business people there found out that there were homes that do not have the Internet and all of these children needed uh, Internet access to do their schoolwork. So the business people got together and supplied laptops to every home. The Internet company went in and hooked up all of these homes in Bermuda, which means now all the children can attend online Good News Club. Now, who would have seen that coming? <laughs> amazing. Absolutely amazing. I was um, going to say that that people who were too busy before have now started family devotions as well. So this is again, impacted the children certainly, but it's radiated out to the families and parents as well. Right. Uh, there's parents who are home from work, so they are participating in watching these children's clubs, either watching the Good News TV with them or getting online with them. Uh, let me tell you this one story of uh, this mother called the club leader with questions so the leader went through the Do You Wonder Why booklet with her, and the mother ended up praying to receive Jesus as her Savior and just cried, talking about how this answers all of her questions. And then the mother started um, their family on, with the stuck-at-home devotionals. I just want to encourage everybody out there, if your family or your children have not been in the habit of having personal daily devotions, this is a really great time to start. You know, they will look back on this time someday with all kinds of negative feelings or they can look back on it as, oh, that's when I first really began a relationship with Jesus. But uh, this leader invited the mom to her own church, which was streaming online. And so the whole family has been attending online church. And then in this other family, the father who was laid off and watching the club with his son he called and had all these questions about the young people who are doing the acting. You know, are they in acting school? Or And, and the, the uh, Good News Club chapter director was saying, no, they believe what they're teaching. They are young people who are you know, learning how to go into ministry, and so they're working at our international headquarters and helping to do these things. So he hangs up. And a week later, he called back and said they just finished watching the next episode and that he and his son both prayed to receive Jesus as their son. Uh, it doesn't get any better than that. No, no, it really can't. Um, and we're just finding new partners everywhere, too. Churches that realize that they need to uh, work with us, um, even some schools around the Caribbean countries, there are schools that are allowing CEF to use their online school platform to actually hold the club. So um, just amazing doors opening in every direction. So for families who are listening and would like to take advantage of this resource, whether it's just for their household or for kids in the neighborhood or perhaps uh, 
a church who has a children's ministry that needs this kind of resource, the best thing for them to do is to go online and take advantage of what's been listed there free of charge? That's right. It's befonline.com slash COVID-19. I'll put a link on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page as well in case you're in the car and didn't get that address. But just really want to encourage families uh, to check this out and to take full advantage of the time that you have with your sons and daughters, with your grandchildren as aunts and uncles, passing these resources along. That could be a transformative time in the lives of uh, many young people in our community as it has been all across the world. Well, Lydia, I am so grateful for CEF and the role that you play in helping to minister to young people and their families and appreciate the time that you've taken to tell us all about it today. Thank you, Georgine, for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Really appreciate it. Again, that website, cefonline.com slash COVID-19, but you can find it with just the, uh, the root address. And again, I'll have a link on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page with that information as well. Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a break. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back to wrap things up in this final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. You know, we talked with Lydia Kaiser about things that uh, kids can do on their Child Evangelism Fellowship website, some great resources available to families. And if you as an adult are looking for some things to do that will also enhance your time at home and um, provide you with opportunities to think more deeply, perhaps, than binge watching your favorite series. No Safe Spaces is uh, for a limited time available for your viewing at home. It was 2019's top political documentary, now available to watch at home. And uh, it tells the disturbing stories, and there are many of them, of how America is becoming a dangerous place to speak your mind and to share ideas. But does it in an entertaining and a very powerful way. The film stars Dennis Prager Adam Carolla, but also features Ben Shapiro, Jordan Peterson, Tim Allen, and personalities on the left like Van Jones, Cornell West, and Alan Dershowitz. If you wonder about the depth of political correctness on college campuses and the impact it's likely to have beyond uh, a, a view that eschews free speech, you'll find No Safe Spaces is eye-opening, it's disturbing, it's challenging, you'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll think deeply, uh, all of that in one sitting. So let me encourage you to take advantage of this opportunity to watch it while it's still available online at nosafespaces.com and enjoy a 25% discount by simply using the discount code SAVE25. Again, that's nosafespaces.com, 25% discount to KPDQ listeners with the discount code SAVE25. Why not watch it, well, now or later this afternoon or this evening? That's um Let's find out what's going on and what we can do about it. NoSafeSpaces.com With all that's going on, one of the stories that was missed during the uh, season we call the National Day of Prayer was the fact that Oregon's governor declined to issue a proclamation. This is the first time ever for the state of Oregon, and I'm not sure, but uh, all across the Fruited Plain, typically all 50 governors, each from their respective state, extend this historically recognized courtesy to the body of Christ, but not this time around. I'm not suggesting we petition the governor that we pick at the Capitol, but just making a point as you're praying for those in positions of authority that you pray for our governor who declined to issue a proclamation for the National Day of Prayer. Now, you might wonder, well, this is a distraction from everything else that's going on. But according to reports, um, that wasn't the case. Well, let's start at the beginning. 
For apparently the first time ever, Oregon's governor didn't issue last month a proclamation acknowledging the National Day of Prayer and that troubles one of the state's key promoters of prayer. And in fact, someone who prays for her, as we all ought. Uh, at this very, at the very least, um, Governor Kate Brown disrespected the entire church in the state of Oregon. That's a quote from Jim Moore. He's the director of the Salem House of Prayer and until recently one of the state coordinators for the National Day of Prayer. He said it was stunning. Moore said that he and Peter Carlson of Pray Oregon each year request and receive from the governor's office an official proclamation acknowledging the National Day of Prayer, which was held this year on the 7th of May. Now, it's not an endorsement. It's an acknowledgement that this is the National Day of Prayer. Typically, all 50 governors, each from their respective state, extend this historically recognized courtesy to the body of Christ. But last month, the request, or actually still this month, the request prompted the following written response. Thank you for contacting the governor's office. We have received your request to issue a proclamation. The governor's office is currently limiting the amount of proclamations processed at this time and must decline your request. Now, Moore said that he spoke to a former state lawmaker who confirmed to him that during such a proclamation is normally a simple procedure requiring only a signature on a pre-printed document and placing it in the mail. So it doesn't require composing a document. It doesn't require deliberation. It doesn't require a group of people uh, constructing the the, uh, content. It requires only a signature on a pre-printed document and placing it in the mail. It's not a long, drawn-out process that requires a great deal of effort. At least that's what the lawmaker says. He added that the current COVID-19 pandemic really doesn't present any reason for the denial of the proclamation. I think... It can understatement, uh, it's an understatement to say that this action is not about our safety, according to uh, these praying folks. Well, it just emphasizes the need, first of all, for prayer over our community. I'm not condemning the governor for the decision she made, but it does remind us that we are to pray that we would live our lives peacefully and that we would be able to live out our faith in a way that uh, not only speaks of the gospel, but demonstrates the gospel and the grace that we have received that is extended to all who believe. Let's remember to pray for our governor, who in addition to making difficult decisions about the way forward, uh, is also someone who has a significant amount of influence when it comes to the uh, communities of faith all across the state. She declined to issue a proclamation. I don't know the reason. I'm not going to try to speculate or create one. But it is sad to consider that Oregon, for the first time in all of the years that there has been a National Day of Prayer, declined uh, by the governor to issue a proclamation. Now, is a proclamation necessary in order for a National Day of Prayer to move forward? No, people prayed. Uh, They did so in remote ways, uh, different ways than we have in the past. Most of us were not at the state capitol praying. We were not on the steps of Um, respective um, city halls and so on, but we prayed. We have been given access, not just to the governor, but we have been given access to the throne of grace. And we are invited there uh, to come on a regular basis, to pray without ceasing. And that is such a remarkable invitation. When we consider that, it's, I suppose, a much smaller thing to consider that the governor of a state has decided not to issue a proclamation. Whether or not one is given or considered is of little importance when you consider the access that we have to the throne of grace. But as we are kneeling before him, as we are making our needs known to him, as we are praying for those who are in authority, keep in mind that many of them don't know Christ. Many of them don't know the grace or the wisdom that 
one receives from God's word. They don't have the indwelling Holy Spirit to guide them. We need to pray for them with compassion and mercy and to be kind in our interactions with them, as frustrating as many politicians might be. Uh, to remember that when you strip away the position of authority and all that comes with it, the dependence and the things that we are pleased with, that ultimately they will one day, like all of us, stand before God. And my hope and prayer is that every one of them, from this governor all the way down through the list of those in authority in the state of Oregon and Washington, in Washington, D.C., and across the country, that they will stand and not try to justify themselves based on their accomplishments, but recognize that without Christ, apart from him, we can do nothing, and that it is his righteousness that gives us standing before God. My prayer is that every politician, regardless of their political stripe, Republican or Democrat, uh, conservative or liberal, that they will call in the name of Jesus from the state house to the state capitol all the way down. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office, and thank you for making the Georgie Rice Show part of your day. And by the way, I just want to mention today happens to be the fifth birthday of James Blend's little girl. Happy birthday, Verity. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.